I'm Corey Astle. And I'm Kyle Salmon. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast dedicated to examining conservative intellectual history to determine the core values of American conservatism. What does it mean to call yourself a conservative? What did it mean in prior times? And how did we get where we are today? We explore these questions and more by turning to conservative political thinkers from the past and present. Each episode, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. If you want to join the discussion, like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Minds at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode 31, we read The Federalist Papers by Alexander Hamilton, James Madison, and John Jay from 1788. Alexander Hamilton was born out of wedlock on the Caribbean island of Nevis. He was orphaned as a child, found work in his teenage years as a clerk before coming to what is now the United States. In 1773, to earn an education at King's College of New York, which is now Columbia University. His college closed during the Revolutionary War, and Hamilton took up the Patriot cause, joining the Continental Army in 1775. Within two years, he was a member of George Washington's staff, but soon hungered for a field command. In 1781, he got one and led troops at the Battle of Yorktown, which sealed the American victory and our independence. After the war, Hamilton became a lawyer and founded a bank, but he was always involved in politics. He attended the Constitutional Convention of 1787 and campaigned for the Constitution's adoption the following year. Washington named him the first Treasury Secretary, and his plans for banking, tariffs, and excise taxes were the basis of the Young Republic's finance system. He remained in politics after leaving the administration in 1796, ultimately to his detriment. The political rivalry with Aaron Burr turned deadly in 1804, and he died in a duel with him at the age of 47. James Madison was born in 1751 to a prominent landholding Virginia family. After graduating from the College of New Jersey, which is now Princeton University, he returned to Virginia and became involved in local politics. Selected to attend the Philadelphia Convention, like Hamilton, he became one of the prominent young voices in creating the Constitution, despite being among the younger men there. After working with Hamilton on the Federalist Papers, they found themselves on opposite sides of many issues during the Washington administration. Madison served in Congress and then became Secretary of State under Thomas Jefferson in 1801. He was elected president in 1808 and again in 1812, after two terms retired to his plantation He died there in 1836 at the age of 85. So the Federalist Papers are 85 letters written under the pen name Publius, which was the the joint creation of Hamilton, Madison, and John Jay, who was another uh, New York politician like Hamilton. He was also our first Chief Justice. He had been uh, active in the government under the Articles of Confederation as well. Madison and Hamilton ended up doing most of the work. Jay either lost interest or got sick. I've, I've read both different explanations as why he became the sort of silent partner in Publius, but uh, it was mostly Hamilton and Madison. And there, the, the point in the letters was to explain the new constitution and specifically to, to explain to the people of New York who had not yet decided whether they were going to ratify it. And uh, along with Virginia would make up the, the crucial vote. If, if the Republic didn't get those two colonies to join up, then it would never get off the ground because they were two of the biggest, most populous colonies. And without them, they wouldn't get to the, not only the necessary number of states that need to ratify the constitution, but also you can't have a United States without New York and Virginia. So it was an important fight. And Hamilton and Madison did these 
papers together pretty quickly over the course of several months in 1788. And later it was called one of the best guides to what the constitution really means. Jefferson himself said it was the best commentary on the principles of government, which was ever written. So it, it sort of, it not just explains the ins and outs of how this new constitution works, but also why we should have it, why it's better than the articles of confederation that was governing the United States at the time. And also it, it looks, which is more important to our purposes, it looks into the principles behind it. You know, why, why are we making these changes? Why is this the best way to govern people? You know, what are the philosophical underpinnings of what was to become the, the basic law of the United States? So we picked out a few of the, the best ones, the, the ones that, you know, we couldn't read. We could do a whole podcast on, you know, one each week for 85 weeks, but instead, um, just kind of distill it down in one episode here. So in Federalist number one, sort of a general introduction to the papers. Um, Hamilton writes that one and he says that by the time he's writing it, the people who came to be known as anti-federalists were already attacking the constitution and the press saying it was, you know, it was too much power into a central government. It was too much power being taken away from the people, less direct democracy, less local control. A lot of the arguments that have been going on throughout American history, there's always been this tension between those who want to centralize and those who want to localize. Mm -hmm. And in, so Hamilton explains in, in the weeks to follow, there will be this series of letters and they're going to explain the principles behind it so that people can really take a look and assess and, you know, and see for themselves, you know, why, why this was necessary, you know, why, why things had to change, why the, the government that they were currently living under was, to, was doomed to fail. It wasn't that it wasn't strong enough. And you can kind of see the tension. I mean, these, these colonies just fought a long war to get out from under the thumb of distant authority you know, free of the crown. And now you've got people saying, well, okay, but now we need to delegate power to a different authority. It's a little closer to home, but it's still, it's, you could, you can understand that the veterans of the fight for independence might say, well, you know, let's, let's savor this independence a little bit. Let's, you know, let's do our own thing. Why are we going to, why are we going to give away these rights and powers that we've fought so hard for? And, you know, as we'll discuss this hour, Hamilton and Madison make the, make the case that if we don't do this, nothing will keep the colonies together. It will spiral out of control, scatter into different factions, and then just be easily dominated by the powers of the world. Britain would love to get them back. France is always meddling in the new world. Spain, everybody else would see 13 weak colonies as easy pickings to reassert their control over these economies and these people. So only in our unity under a functioning national government that works better than the one under the articles, could we ever maintain our independence and maintain that the liberties that we fought so hard for. Yeah. And it seems like, as you said, they just finished uh, fighting this war and now they see this is our opportunity. Let's not lose the opportunity. And I love how he kind of opens up. Federalist number one, Hamilton. Hamilton, who's just got such clarity of writing, it's it's great. But mm. it has been frequently remarked that it seems to have been reserved to the people of this country by their conduct and example 
to decide the important question whether societies of men are really capable or not of establishing good government from reflection and choice, or whether they are forever destined to depend for their political constitutions on accident and force. In other words, the entire world is watching. We've won our war. You know, we have our we have our independence, and now the entire world is watching. What are we going to do with it? Can we actually build a, a society based on these ideals, based on uh, a, a constitutional form of government? Can can we figure it out? Can we do this? Like you know, it's the the dog that caught the car. We've mm-hmm. got it. Now, what are we going to do with it? Can we do it? And it just really jumps out that he that these guys ostensibly, you know, you, you made the comparison between concentrating power versus, versus not. And so, you know, ostensibly you think, well, these guys are the more in contemporary parlance, we'd call the more liberal, but that, that's not, that's not it. It's mm-hmm. more like these guys see an opportunity. And if, if we don't come together now, if we don't make this happen, then by next year and the year after we're going to start breaking up again and it will have, you know, all have been for not because We'll get picked off, you know. Some will get picked off by Britain. Some will get picked off by France, and we'll be back. Instead of holding together, we'll be at one another's throats. So, is it possible to have a government of laws? You know, is it really possible for for men to stand back and decide and build a government on our own, or is it always and forever the destiny of man to be subject to other rulers? You know, a despot. I think that's and that is part of the idea that the world is watching. I think is a is a huge part of the the background here that doesn't always come across because yeah, everybody else in the world is ruled by a king. They know that there were democracies in ancient times and in small city states in Greece and things like that. But the idea of a big republic never been tried before. So everybody in Europe is thinking this is just going to devolve into anarchy. There's no mm-hmm. king. There's no aristocracy. No, who, who's in charge? You know, who, everybody thinks they're in charge. Everybody's going to try and do his own thing. It's going to atomize and spiral out of control. In Federalist 15, uh, there was a, there was a pretty long passage just cataloging all of the problems. And it, it kind of reminded me of Trump's inaugural address. So especially the first line, we may indeed with propriety be said to have reached almost the last stage of national humiliation. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's kind of, he, Hamilton's looking out at, at what's going on in America. He's got, a, you've got a central government that has no taxing power. So whenever the federal government needed money to do anything, like pay the Continental Army, for instance, they had to ask the states to give it to them. And sometimes the states said no. Or sometimes the states said, yeah, uh, but they didn't give it on time. Or, you know, they gave you a half what you asked for. That's no kind of government. I mean, that's not a, that's, that's a charity. You know, and if every time a state was annoyed at the federal policy. They just stopped paying their taxes. And that was the only way the federal government could get any money. I mean, you have, that's not a government. It's, mm-hmm. it's more like, that's more like NATO or something. It's a, it's a, it's like a treaty organization. It's, um, and, and Hamilton is saying in Federalist 15, you know, if we actually want a nation and not just an alliance, we have to actually make steps to make this a nation, a nation that can go toe to toe with other nations so they can Oh, Britain's raising an army. We're going to raise an army. You know, Britain's, you know, doing this sort of trade policy. We will also have some sort of trade policy, not just whatever 13 different trade policies are when they interact with each other. We need a currency. We need a Navy. We need things 
that a nation has and not just for the reasons that kings often want you know the finest army and navy because of their pride and their you know, desire for conquest it's just being a nation in the world means having the things that are symbolic and, and necessary for nationhood which we didn't have that and to start it all off he's gonna hamilton's gonna tell us the way to make this work what we're gonna do is uh, we're gonna take this core bedrock assumption which is that humans behave in certain ways we're we're going to identify human nature something that's been identified by philosophy throughout the the history of the world and what what we're going to do is we're going to take that baseline assumption and we're going to build a government around it so that we can pit interests against each other and what really just jumps out at me is you know compare this to you know our, our Thomas Sowell episode where he's talking about constrained versus unconstrained vision and the unconstrained vision believes in no fixed human nature and culture and human behavior. So socially constructed, socially driven. Hamilton comes down very hard on the opposite side and says, no, this is plain, plain to see humans behave in certain ways. There is a human nature. And what we're going to do is we're going to build a government on the basis of that assumption. And so we're going to assume that men have ambition and avarice and personal animosity and party opposition, he says, and many other motives not more laudable than these and are apt to operate as well upon those who support as those who oppose the right side of a question. He says, mm -hmm. so numerous indeed and so powerful are the causes which serve to give a false bias to the judgment that we upon many occasions see wise and good men on the wrong side as well as the right side of questions. <laughs> Every single Federalist paper takes, takes up this baseline assumption and kind of develops it because it's basically what they have in mind is people, citizens, they're going to see, uh, you know, advantage. And, you know, he's, he's starting out the Federalist number one by basically saying like, you know, obviously there's going to be so many people who are going to oppose our ideas. And the reason they oppose it though, is because the interest of a certain class of men in every state is to resist all changes because men who will hope to aggrandize themselves or they flatter themselves of fairer prospects of elevation. In other words, they see comparative advantage with the status quo, or maybe they even support us because they see advantage, you know, that mm -hmm. they can take more power. But, you know, I think the, the Federalist Papers, it just jumped out at me immediately that this is, this is a series of documents, a series of essays that are kind of the, the bedrock core assumptions of conservatism. I mean, it really is. We, we believe that humans have a human nature and that it's not always a good one. And we need to establish institutions to safeguard against the passions that can prevail in the heat of the moment. And, you know, they, they're very clear about the fact that they believe, and it's self-evident to them that a human nature remains constant over the centuries. So the, the idea to them of erasing the chalkboard and starting from square zero. It's just, it just makes no sense. And it, it's not like the rest of the world had that same assumption because we saw in the French revolution and obviously they had, they came at it from a very different angle thinking like, no, we, we can plant new humans and, mm -hmm. and uh, develop them. And we're going to socially construct a society where people will behave in this other, other way. And you know, what we found out was, that's not how they behave. You know, Hamilton, Madison, 
They're actually right about human nature. Yeah, it really it sets our revolution apart from most of the revolutions that came after it too. Is you know we were trying to erect a new form of government, but we weren't making a new humanity. Mm-hmm. And then that people call people call the American Revolution a pretty conservative revolution in comparison with the things in France or, or Russia or China that came later. But it, it's it's yeah, it's conservative. I think that's often said in the sense of like, oh, they meant to protect the property class, you know, but it, it's conservative in that, that more in that nature you were talking about, uh, philosophically conservative and humble in the face of this task that other revolutions took on without seemingly a second thought, this task of remaking human nature. We're going to, you know, we're just going to change a few forms of how government is put together and it's going to change all of the people under it. And that never worked. And it's, it's more impressive that Hamilton and Madison knew it wouldn't work because it hadn't really been tried that much in their day. Mm-hmm. You know, th- we have the benefit at least of looking at the results of the Russian revolution of 1917 and saying, boy, that, you know, they, they were going to make the new Soviet man. And for decades, they tried to force the Russian people into these, this mold uh, invented by Marx and Lenin, and it never worked. And as soon as, as soon as the handcuffs were off, they bounced right back into the regular humanity again Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. these guys didn't know that i mean they 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 thought that but they didn't have the evidence that we have today so it's even it's even to me more impressive that they looked at at humanity and said you know these these things are innate and they're and they're part of who we are so instead of just trying to you know chop the human spirit up and rearrange it like a puzzle let's let's work with what we have and instead arrange the government that we create in a way that, that uses those forces to keep us free instead of trying to stay free by destroying who we are. Mm-hmm. It's kind of the same thing Adam Smith was writing about at the same time. You know, the idea that, I mean, he was saying, oh, if people are working to their own interest, it betters the whole, whole economy, you know, and, and here Madison and Hamilton are saying in this constitutional convention, we did that, but for government, we set up these, different parts of government, each one to be jealous of each other's powers, each one to, you know, if a faction becomes powerful on this side, then in this other branch that a different faction could fight against that. And it, 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 it takes that sort of what a lot of progressives even today would say is sort of the bad part of humanity. Oh, you know, the, the greed, the, the, the lust for power, the, the demand that only, our views be the ones that are carried out, not other people's views. We're right. They're wrong. Let's force it through. It takes that sort of malign, malign facet of humanity and twists it in a way that produces great results. It's, mm-hmm. it's when you, sometimes you, I, I think about it, it's still just amazing that they came up with this system and it explains why our constitution is still around. While all the constitutions that came in the revolutions of, in Europe and, and elsewhere have, been torn up and rewritten and rewritten again and overthrown in the world. Well, our thing keeps enduring because it it's written for real humans. Yeah. Brilliant. And just, just remarkable that they're able to do it. And I think this is what makes it a really is a, a work of philosophy and not just uh, political essays trying to persuade this. It's not a series of, of columns from a, col- a couple of columnists, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, this is hardcore like philosophy. They're making an argument about, about the, the nature of humanity and, and the world. And they don't start from the assumption that, you know, 
if we can just get people to behave in this certain way, you know, you know, when we're talking about Adam Smith, he's, he's, he's saying not only like if people pursue their interests, it's better for our society. He's also saying people will pursue their interests. So let's just look at it as let's take the positive end of that, of that fact. And in the Federalist Papers, I mean, Hamilton and Madison are saying, they're not saying, hey, guys, you know, come on, if we can only just behave in this certain way, if we can just get along in this certain way, if we can just do this or that. Instead, they're saying, hey, look, we know a bunch of people are going to behave. I mean, I love from from Federalist number 10. It is in vain to say that enlightened statesmen will be able to adjust these clashing interests and render them all subservient to the public good. And here's the kicker. Enlightened statesmen will not always be at the helm. <laughs> yes. You know, the causes of faction cannot be removed. Relief can only be sought in the means of controlling the effects of faction, which we should, we'll get into a little bit more. But I mean, the, the what they're saying is basically like, we're not going to have enlightened leaders. We're not going to have these benevolent dictators, you know, at the benevolent kings or, or leaders. And in fact, when we do, it's an aberration. So they're, they're, it's not, it's, they're not there. This is a, a work of persuasion, but they're persuading people to like band together, but they're not trying to persuade people to necessarily behave in a certain way because they're just making assumptions about the way people will behave. Like we know that they're going to behave and that we know they're going to seek their self-interest. That's just how people behave. That's just how they act. We know that they're, if they can see a comparative advantage that they're going to take it. We know that if, you know, it's better for them, it serves their interests better to take this position on the issue then they will. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and there's, I, I think it's indisputable. The data has come in over the centuries and in the history of the world, and certainly in the history of America to show that people will, they will seek their self-interest. They do behave in ways that are irrational, let's say, because what, what they're doing is pursuing their, their passions and passions of the moment. And, and the idea that we could ever have a society on the, based on, kind of this collective agreement to behave benevolently between one another, they just find completely delusional. And again, that's just a deeply conservative American way of seeing the world. Yeah. And it's, I, I think I've read that when, when they were coming up with how the presidency was going to be structured, a lot of people, even at the constitutional convention, even before the thing was finished, were picturing George Washington as the first president. And he was unanimously elected in the election of that in the first presidential election. But it's so important that they didn't fall into that trap of saying, well, we just need this good man at the helm and Mm -hmm. then we can give him all the powers because he won't abuse them. And he probably wouldn't have. I mean, he was, he was that American Cincinnatus, that one who, you know, he led the revolution, won the victories and then went back to his farm. And then they called him forth again to, you know, help fix the problems of the articles of confederation. And he said, all right, I'll, you know, I'll come to the Constitutional Convention. I'll serve as president. He was going to retire after one term. They asked him to stay. He did another one, and then that was it. Mm-hmm. He went home again. That's, but that is that that aberration of of the good, self denying, you know, public spirited man who was willing to lead the country, but not to his own advantage, to only to his his countrymen's advantage. And I think. I mean, it's almost mythological. Do we have do we have leaders yes. who are like that anymore today? I mean, can you imagine anyone saying like, "Oh, you know, I'm going to retire back to my farm"? I mean, it's it's yeah, it's amazing, and it's it, it's to their credit that they saw. Well, here's a good guy to put in charge, obviously, but they're not all going to be like him. And even 
the ones that followed right away. We talk about Adams and Jefferson and Madison as founding fathers and good presidents, but they a lot of them hated each other, and each of them would point to the other when they were in power and say, "See that? That's the kind of you know evil that shows we need checks and balances. Look what he's trying to do." Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. with the remove of history, we don't think of Adams or Jefferson as tyrants, but at the time, as the factionalism was heating up, I mean, they had the same sort of tribalist arguments in their new political parties that we have in our old ones now, you know, they had the same vitriol in their campaigns. It's like, look, Adams is going to sell us out to the British. Jefferson, he's a stooge to the atheist French, you know, <laughs> the same sort of stuff we say now. But having built a system where they're not living under a tyrant meant you could say that you could disagree with that guy and say, but we have a system in place that's going to ensure he's not going to throw all his enemies in jail and rule by decree and, and, you know, take us down some awful path. There's, there's still going to be that moderation of checks and balances and federalism as a, as sort of the second level of checks and balances in its way. So it, yeah, it's, it's brilliant on so many levels and the way they, the way in in Federalist 10 here, uh, Madison discusses factionalism as just, we've got it. It's always going to exist. It's not good. But let's use it to our advantage. It's just remarkable. Yeah, let's go through that a little bit because I, I mean, I think it's just a work of genius. The Federalist Number Ten on faction. He calls fact. What is a faction? Faction is a number of citizens who are united by some common impulse of passion or interest adverse to the rights of other citizens or the community. Uh, do we have that at all today? Like people, you know, groups who <laughs> yeah. who band together and who are united in a common impulse or passion. That's or interest that's adverse to everyone else? Yeah, I think so. So he mm-hmm. says, two ways to cure the mischiefs of fashion, faction. Number one is to remove its cause. And number two is to control its effects. And so he basically says, and I know what you're going to say. You're going to say, yeah, let's just remove its cause. That's so easy. And again, that would be, going back to soul, that would be the unconstrained vision. Let's just te- teach people, show people the right way, and we'll, re- you know, we'll remove its cause. And he's like, but not so fast. Right. Because there's only two ways to remove the causes of faction, he says. Number one is to destroy the liberty, which is ex- essential to the existence. Number two is to give every citizen the same opinions, passions, and interests. And so he says, obviously, destroying liberty is worse than the disease because ensuring liberty is the whole reason we're uh, embarked on this project in the first place to create a constitution. You know. Liberty is to fact. He gives this uh, analogy of liberty is to faction what air is to fire. You know, we're not going to eliminate air just so that we can stop fire. We're not, so we're not we're not going to eliminate liberty to stop faction because that we need it to exist. And uh, again, you, you, to back to the point you made, these guys were making you know philosophical pronouncements. Since that time, we've seen this play out because. We've seen a, we've seen societies try to destroy liberty in order to to uh, cure you know faction and you know we see it in the Ch- Chinese uh, Communist Party and in in, in in a number of uh, communist regimes and then you know in Putin's Russia I mean Putin's closer to fascism at this point than than communism and by you you can you you can remove faction by eliminating its cause by destroying liberty but you're going to have to use compulsion and mm-hmm. you're going to have to for and uh, use tremendous force 
And then going back to his number two, well, if we don't want to destroy liberty. Well, then let's just give every citizen the same opinions, passions, and interests, he says. Again, this is this goes back to Soul. Soul would say that the unconstrained vision thinks you can do that. Where right. Hamilton's response is, that ain't going to work. Give, he says, giving every citizen the same opinions is impracticable. And and again, that's been tried. We've seen re-education in China, in Russia, with the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia, with the North Vietnamese. Like it doesn't work. You you can you can compel people and you can you know force them to confess their sins in the moment mm-hmm. while they're being tortured, but immediately afterwards, you know, in their own minds and certainly with their friends and family, they're like. Yeah, that's crazy. No, I don't. I don't believe that at all. And so, the exercise of liberty will yield different opinions. He says, obviously, because the only way to force the the only way to create the same opinion in every person is through compulsion and through punishment and through uh, despotism. And he kind of rolls that into the answer to the one of the other previous objections of making this one big country is that. People were saying that, you know, and you can't have a republic this big. People are too different, too spread out. They're not the states. Okay. Some are big, some are small, but they're at least, you know, manageable sizes of people to have a republic in this country, which it's funny because it's now, and we're talking about the country, about 20% as big in land as the one we now have and much smaller in population. But they were saying that a lot of people were saying that's way too big. Can't run a republic that big. Madison says it actually helps because there are the people are diverse. You know, there are different interests in these different states, which means odds are you're not going to get a majority faction that's going to roll over the rights of the minority because these people are, are different enough that there's going to be a bunch of small different factions, mm-hmm. little ones that are fighting against each other. And then when we get together on those few issues that we have delegated to federal control, there's not going to be a, a united front for steamrolling some segment of the people's liberty. I think that's less true now uh, because we are more, I mean, in those days you're dealing with people who really thought of themselves as Virginians first and, and Americans second, because it was still a new thing to be an American. I think now you, you can have national majorities that are the exact kind of faction that Madison was worried about. I mean, there are, there are national majorities at various times for taking away different liberties. And you can think to your least favorite piece of legislation over the past few decades. And, you know, it doesn't even matter if it's something from the right or the left because both sides have done it at times. Mm-hmm. There is there is that major, majoritarian power faction that exists now because we are Americans in a, in a united country. I mean, the work of the constitution was accomplished in, in the, to the extent that it meant to unite these people. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's st- Madison's argument still works though. I mean, the, the, the principles of government, the things that we say lead to gridlock now are really one of the original ways of protecting our liberties. Yeah. And I mean, I think you're right that, that certainly a, a majority, even with our large country can, you know, tyrannize. But I mean, if you think about it, if, if we were still this confederation, well, the, you know, the, the state of these Midwestern states would be completely controlled by ethanol interests, you know, and, mm-hmm. and Florida would be controlled by sugar interests. And, you know, you get Michigan controlled by automobile industry, you know, I mean, so these, you know, let's say ethanol, for example, they're very powerful in the Midwest, 
they have no no sway whatsoever in Arizona, Nevada, California, you know, I mean, and so it's, it still holds. I mean, you still, you still have these, these mini factions where if they were only part of, you know, individual States confederating together, you could see, you know, these massive interests that just completely overtake. But when you throw them all in a big pot, you know, suddenly like the sugar industry, yeah, they're going to get a little piece of theirs, but they're not going to be able to control the world because it's just a small faction among, you know, this gigantic sea of factions. Yeah, they don't run the whole country for sure, um, the way they would in a, a state made up of mostly people who work in that industry. But I think it's, it's sort of that, that public choice theory of, you know, the people who care about ethanol really care about ethanol. And the rest of us, I, I think it's not a great program, but it's not going to get me marching in the streets about it, you know, mm -hmm. and, and, and the races for Congress in, in my neighborhood aren't even going to mention it. Right. So, I mean, factions are going to get their way even when they're in the minority sometimes because the extent to which those people are willing to fight for their interests, just the way people in my state used to fight for coal and, and railroads, it, it's the passion sometimes out outweighs the numbers, but that's definitely true. That's more in getting, that's more in rent seeking and getting, you know, a little help from the government, a little industrial policy their way. It's not, it's not the domination that you would see in a Republic where everyone really cared about that thing. Yeah. And I mean, if and then every, you see the if every, yeah, if, if every state was built like Pennsylvania, coal would have run this country yeah, and absolutely. still would probably run it. Yeah. yeah you know, yeah. but that's, that's but, where you see the trade-offs and the log rolling, you know, and then that, mm -hmm. that's just going to be part of democracy. We're going to say, okay, yeah. If we get our coal, you get your ethanol. And I mean, that was built into the, the last, I mean, the last energy bills, bills we had in 05 and 07, that was all built into it. So it was, you know, wind and solar. So that those interests got their piece, you know, so you have these hodgepodge legislation where you're kind of like, there, there's no coherent, you know, vision of American energy here. There's no, yeah. not, no strategy because it's just, everybody gets a little piece of theirs, but that's better than the alternative of, yes. you know, he's pushing it back against Montesquieu. They're, they're using Montesquieu as in his brilliant thought, but then they're also taking it in another direction and disagreeing with him on this point. And Montesquieu says, small Republic better. And they're going to say, he's brilliant. This is all good. Let's take these ideas, but we think he's wrong. We think that if it were bigger, that it would pit these interests against one another. And yeah, yeah. The hodgepodge is kind of a better result than, an overwhelming vision imposed on the nation, which may or may not even be right. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think Madison's ideas, they, they still make sense. Mm -hmm. uh, and this one line from, from number 10 that I really wanted to, you know, read, he's talking about equality. He says, theoretic politicians who have patronized this species of government have erroneous, erroneously supposed that by reducing mankind to a perfect equality in their political rights, they would at the same time be perfectly equalized in their possessions, their opinions, and their passions. And, and then he turns around and dismisses that completely. Uh, this doesn't necessarily go along with what we were talking about faction, but it's just another instance of, of Madison recognizing there, there is a, a human nature there. You know, people ha do have different talents and capacities and abilities, and that's never going to change. So all we're doing here, he says, basically we're giving people equal political rights so that they can all, you know, everybody's going to get a chance to vote and everybody's going to get a chance to participate. 
through a Republican form of government. But but don't think that that implies anything about, you know, how, how the level of achievement that people are going to, you know, that, that they're going to achieve. And it just reminded me of uh, the conversation in, uh, in Fukuyama that, uh, that I thought was so, so enjoyable. But these guys, again, they're, they're just, they're, they're putting all of these ideas together in one, in all at the same time, while also trying to make a, a political argument. I mean, it's just, it really is brilliant uh, that they have all of this uh, deep philosophical thinking while at the same time, it's a, it's a work of persuasion. It's pretty cool. It, it is. It is. And I, I want to make sure we touch on Federalist 51 before we end. Cause yes. I mean, for me, I think that's the most important one. It's the one that comes up the most when I'm, whenever I'm writing about some of these subjects and it focuses on the separation of powers. Uh, this is, this one's also by Madison. He starts by imagining that the perfect government would have three separate branches, all chosen by the people, none beholden to the other. And then he kind of dismisses part of that right away because he says that's not the best way to choose a judge by election. So some of the branches are going to be elected, some of them aren't, but they're st- but they still are going to be each one, you know, they'll get entangled. There's, you know, like how the vice president is also the president of the Senate and the president can veto laws. You know, that's, that's sort of a legislative power mixed in with the executive and the Senate can, you know, has to, uh, approve judges, nominations and, and ambassadors. So they're, you know, they're, they're not completely separate powers. They interact with each other, but they're separate to the extent that they each have an independent power base. Mm-hmm. They're, you know, neither, none is fully dependent on the other. And that means that if one branch gets corrupted by some faction, the other two can still push back against it. Yeah. So it's that same tension that using, using faction to fight faction. And he says each, each must have the necessary constitutional means and personal motives to resist encroachment of the others. And that's the, the personal motives part is I think the part that would confuse them the most about the 21st century American Republic in the way, and we've talked about it so many times that Congress has given away so much of its power. Right. Yeah. That's, that's something that Madison and Hamilton would never have recognized the idea Mm -hmm. that they made this the most powerful branch Congress. They're going to the ones who write the laws that that's the whole thing. You know, and they, and they spend the money without that. You don't have a government yet. You see, you see today and for, for decades now, Congress has given away that rulemaking authority to the executive branch. They, They write a vague law and say, Oh, and the secretary for whatever will fill in the rest, you know, and those regs will have the force of law, even though they never got passed by the Congress. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they do some of the same stuff with spending. You know, they, they, oh, well, the, the secretary of transportation will decide which projects get funded. I mean, I guess that's meant to be an improvement from the old pork barrel, but at least with the pork barrel spending, it was Congress picking out where the pork went. Exactly. It was, yes. it, you know, it was the people's representatives. And if they did it wrong, they, they were right there at the next election, having to defend it. Mm-hmm. Whereas now, I mean, a, a bureaucrat in the department of transportation never has to defend anything. So this, something that seemed obvious to them and is mostly still true is the idea that each branch is going to want to keep its own power and not just surrender it off to another. But the, there's one, if there's one emerging flaw in our system today, it's that one of the branches has really gotten 
pretty lazy about protecting itself. Yeah, and I never in a million years would have saw that coming. And and if you're just walking off, coming off the street to read the Federalist Papers, probably to me the most surprising aspect is how much confidence they had in in the legislative branch in Congress, and how how minimized the presidency really was in their in their thinking. You know, they viewed the president as someone who just really just executed on on the legislative's uh, legislation and, and intent. And but you know, they were so worried that Congress that Congress would would uh, tyrannize that they he says. The remedy for this inconvenience is to divide the legislature into different branches and to render them by different modes of election and different principles of action as little connected with each other as the uh, common functions and their common dependence on the society will admit. In other words, like we're so, we're so worried the, that the Congress is going to run roughshod over the other two branches that we're going to actually split it into two. We're going to have a Senate. We're going to have a House of Representatives. And, well, it worked. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> It certainly worked. Um, so as to keep the Congress from running roughshod, but to your point, like the I think the the real uh, constitutional crisis is that Congress really has abdicated all of its all of its authority. I mean, it, it should be the leading branch of government guiding the way and leading the charge. But instead, any time that they can pass something over to the executive branch, so that so that the executive has to kind of take the heat for any of the the downside. Well, I don't think Madison or Hamilton would have ever imagined the contemporary administrative state. Where, no, where you have rulemakings that are created and executed by non-elected agencies of the federal government. Like they wouldn't have, they wouldn't have imagined that, and I'm sure they'd be appalled. And again, uh, this is the Conservatives Minds podcast, and th- these are. Th- some of the reasons that uh, you know conservatives point back to the Constitution, you know, all the times to say that's not that's not what we had in mind, and you know this this whole massive administrative state where the president can, you know, ostensibly do whatever he wants, like that that was not the intent. The president is just supposed to make sure that the trains run on time, but the legislature, the Congress, is what should be leading the way and should be guiding pol- dictating policy. Yeah, maybe it's maybe it's the rise of mass media because that lets the president speak with one voice, while Congress is speaking with five hundred something voices. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe mm-hmm. that's part of it that to the voter says, "Well, here's here's the one with the plans. Look at him," and then they look at Congress and they're always arguing amongst themselves. But that's how it's supposed to work because it's a legislature. I mean, that's every legislature is supposed to have debates. That's the whole point. But it, it like maybe it looks to people like chaos i don't know um because they, I, well, I, so think, it, I think that's one of the big changes when radio and television started up i, I think you're right and and today you know I've, I've had this conversation with friends so many times it's kind of like there's a number of presidential candidates on either side of the aisle that you could you know you could maybe live with but that's not really how it works because the president you know him or herself they're they're gonna have you know he's gonna have authority to take us to war. And, you know, that's, that's a a frightening prospect, but the main thing is who do they bring with them in the administration? Because these days who the president is, is a lot less important than which party, because, you know, frankly, like a a whole lot of the administration, I mean, of course, some of them have been fired and pushed out now at this point, but 
even Trump being being Trump, like most of the administration was filled by just Republican, you know, <laughs> conservative uh, nominees, and and whether it's regular guys, you know. yeah, if it was Biden or even Bernie or you know Kamala Harris, I mean, I, I think ultimately the positions are going to be filled with basically the same people, and and again, they have this this uh, authority that the founders never intended and would be certainly appalled by. They have this authority to create rules and basically create law, fully create law without any, uh, you know, elected officials participating at all. And so this is, this is how you get the Imperial presidency. Cause I think Madison and Hamilton, I think they were right that the president himself is a relatively minimized can act, you know, in emergency situations with foreign nations, but otherwise is just going to sort of make the trains run on time, execute on the laws. But now with the administrative state, it's completely different. You know, now his people can make their own laws. Now his people can, can execute and can, you know, dictate the actions of businesses on the ground because they can force them to do this, that, or the other without any um, congressional participation at all. Yeah, I think that there's one lesson to take from the Federalist Papers. It's that Congress needs to act more like that vision of human nature that we have is that get jealous of your powers. Yeah. Take what's yours. Try. It would even be better if they tried to take too much because then the other branches would at least push back. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it's that, that kind of gets to the, what is for me, the key passage of Pharaoh's 51 it says it may be a reflection on human nature that such devices should be necessary to control the abuses of government. But what is government itself but the greatest of all reflections on human nature? Mm -hmm. If men were angels, no government would be necessary. If angels were to govern men, neither external nor internal controls on government would be necessary. In framing a government which is to be administered by men over men, the greatest difficulty lies in this. You must first enable the government to control the governed, and in the next place oblige it to control itself. The dependence on the people is no doubt the primary control on government, but experience has taught us has taught mankind the, necess the necessity of auxiliary precautions. <laughs> and that, that is just brilliant to me. It is, yeah. And it, it goes back to that point we were making before, that they've made throughout the papers. This is not a government to be administered by perfect men over perfect men, because there are no such folk. This is, this is a government that's meant to endure by having somebody in these different branches of government who is flawed in, in some way or another mm -hmm. and the people he's governing are flawed in different ways and it's okay it's going to work we're going to work together and those flaws will balance each other out and those desires for power are going to cancel each other out so mm -hmm. i i guess if there's if there's something to learn from the federalist papers it's congress try to get more power not over the people <laughs> but over the president over the courts over the over you know i mean at least even over the states which i don't think they should do but then at least it might tell the states hey push back they're trying to take something from you that's that's yours yeah yeah absolutely i, I love that paragraph I'm, I'm glad you read it because it's it's basically their philosophy in a nutshell and uh, and it's brilliant so all right and any uh, that was a great last word but do you have anything else you want to add i i mean i think that's it i think they they built this government in in 1787 and, and explained it here the next year in a, in a way that it the federalist papers are not just an explanation like a user's guide to the constitution because if that's all it was it, it's no more impressive than any other explanation of any other constitution mm -hmm. but in getting it at what's behind it 
and getting in those, those understandings of how people work together in a government, how people govern each other, how people try to rule each other. They understood human nature in a way that is still very true today, has always been true because it's a true explanation of who we are. Yeah. And we don't change that much over yeah. the years. We, we learn things and maybe we grind out some of our worst impulses, but we really are still the same people that we're making up this country then and we're making up previous countries centuries earlier. We, Mankind is mankind. Yeah. Madison and Hamilton and Jay understood what that was and they built a government to turn our good impulses and bad in a, in a positive direction. Mm-hmm. And, and the federal papers is the, one of the best explanations of how that should work. Yeah, absolutely. Ditto to all that. I mean, then it's, it's a deeply conservative view of the world and, you know, in, in soul's language, uh, the constrained view of the world, understanding human nature. And we're going to, we're going to embark on this project of creating a government of laws rather than a government of men, but we're going to do it with eyes wide open. We have a very sober reading of how humans behave and we want this thing to work. We want it. We want to win and we want it to work for the long haul. And so we're going to, we're going to go in eyes wide open. We're not going to make any rosy assumptions. We're going to see humans behave this way. They always have. And so as a result, we're going to create a government that, that uh, pits interests against one another and it's worked. And I mean, there, there have been different times of, of struggle and crisis and civil war and so forth. But, and, and I'm sure there's more to come, but it really is amazing. It's just really cool. And that that you and I are the, beneficiaries of of these ideas and and these guys pushing and you know all these other countries who also had their own revolutions that failed but ultimately like came back around in the the american model because hamilton madison they were right and their vision of the world it it really is a a sober and and accurate vision of how the world works and and so you know european countries have come back around and kind of followed our model uh and it's pretty amazing so I highly recommend the Federalist Papers, particularly number 10 and number 51. But uh, much we actually read much more than that. And there's just so much to get to. But we're done here today. Next time, we're going to read Rationalism in Politics by Michael Oakeshott. And this is a series of essays. The collection of essays was published in 1962, but he has essays in there from as early as uh, the late 1940s. So hopefully you'll join us then. Thanks.